0: Welcome aboard, whether you've got here by accident or on purpose, whether you're kidnapped and held hostage and waiting for someone to pay the ransom, you have reached Fishing Without Bait, a lifetime without definitive expectations, where we help people explode into their lives through full impact mindfulness. We're looking for people who want to create themselves rather than find themselves. The only requirement is the honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness to try. If you're welcome nowhere else, You're certainly welcome here. Let the adventure begin. My name is Jim Ellermeyer, I'm a behavioral health therapist, and today we're joined by a really anticipated guest, uh, Mr. David Pohl, an artist and illustrator of some renown. So as you went went along through your life, uh, apparently you happened to run into uh, a gentleman by the name of Fred Rogers.
1: Yeah, I did. I got to work on the show for a couple years, Um, and so I actually was thinking about when that was, and it was '91. So I was, I had I had bought my house, and I was doing some illustration for the magazine, and I was dropping the work off at the magazine, and I, you know, I knew that they filmed Mister Rogers in that building at WQED, and I was, uh, and I. I grew up watching this show um i think I think the show before it went nationally it was on uh it was on like n, uh, national education n e t was the name of the the network and um and I remember uh, watching it in black and white when I was probably about four or five years old and I actually did not as i remember as a kid not really relating to Fred's portion of the show, but relating to the puppets. Yes. I love I love the puppets and I love the neighborhood of make-believe. But um so I I was really, you know, I wanted to I just wanted to kind of hang out and see what was going on. And there was a viewing booth you could watch them film, and so I just I guess I figured out like I wanna I could maybe I could work on this show. Um so I found the art director who was in the building, I guess they were working on a show at that time. And um, and I just asked her, you know, what it would take for me to to work on the show. And I think I gave her a resume. and I was very persistent though. And she actually, years later, she joked with me. She told me, I only hired you, you know, because so you'd stop bugging me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so tell us, uh, tell us what you did on the show, David.
1: Well, I was a scenic artist. And, uh, I did props and, um, we set up the scenery for the show. Like, so when they were filming the neighborhood of make relief section, we painted the dots on the floor ah. and we set up the, the castle and the house and, uh, you know, and, you know, if it was in storage and it needed a little touch up, we'd touch up things and, you know, we'd put the, the plastic vines on and, you know, just kind of dress the set. Um, and then I made props, um, for the show and the, the props were basically anything that needed made for that show, you know, and eventually I started to kind of be the guy that they turned to when they needed posters or I designed, you know, when Mr. McFeely would come in and do the picture picture thing and he'd bring a video tape, And so I would design the videotape box for picture picture. Um, Oh wow! Which was you know I loved picture picture as a kid. That was when they would take you to you know see how crayons were made or take you to a factory. Yes. So I I designed props and yeah we we worked on the show. The show was filmed like three times a year and they would they would uh, be in production for about two months to film five shows. So they only filmed like three new weeks of shows. A year ah, but they were in production for like two months to do those five shows hmm and and it in the 90s the shows got more complicated they they started getting a little bit more elaborate they had bigger budgets and things I think it was so much fun and uh, like I said earlier the people I met there I'm still really close with a few people that have become like family to me
0: so, so. tell us tell us what it was like on this set tell us give us the atmosphere
1: well, the set sometimes it wasn't until later when I worked on it, so I worked on it in the early nineties and then in in the late nineties and I actually was really fortunate I got to work on the last shows um, so the the very last shows I got to work on and um and that was really special that was really special because everyone knew what they were the last shows you know, and it was really something to just be there for that um But the sets were pretty relaxed, I mean, they worked, everyone worked really hard, you know, and uh, um, at one time I got to, um, you know, we didn't often get to hang out in the studio during the shooting. Um, We were back working on props and things like that. So they might be shooting when we're working on new props or, you know, we had a studio space there we're working in. so I didn't get to spend a lot of time in the studio when I first started working there, but then later on I got to spend more time in the studio. That was always very special, um, and because a lot of those people had been working on the show for over thirty-five years, you know they all knew each other. They they were kids together, and they started, and you know that was really uh, just that chemistry between all the people and that that family feeling there. You know there were really a lot of great people working on the show. Um, and one time I got to, to, um, to, to sit behind the treehouse with Fred while he operated the puppet. Ah. And it, there was a scene where Lady Elaine Fairchild, that puppet, she was, um, squirting people with a hose. And so <laughs> the puppets were getting wet and then they had to be dried off. So I sat back there with a hairdryer, like drying, draw, draw, uh, drawing the puppets and then like combing their hair and, you know. Um, retouching the paint on their face or something like that, but I, but I got to sit with Fred for a, a couple hours that day and just watch him work the puppets, and that was just totally magical. You know,
0: tell us about some of the interactions. Tell us some anecdotes about your remembrances of Fred.
1: Well, Fred, Fred was always the same. You know, I think people used to always ask me, "Is Fred the same guy in real life as he was on TV?" and I always said, yes, he's exactly the same guy. Um, um, he's very gentle. He's very kind. He speaks very slowly. He instantly makes you feel like he, he was so connected. Like when he was talking to you, you were the most important person in the world. You know, he was just, you know, right there, very present. And it was hard to compliment Fred. If you said, a com- if you complimented him, he would, turn it around on you and say something like, well, that's very nice. You know, that means a lot coming from an artist like you, or that, that means a lot to me coming from, you know, so he always kind of turned, returned the compliment, turned it around and took the tension off himself and put it back on you. Mm. And I have some records here that he signed for me. Ah, um, I don't know if you can see these.
0: Yes. Showing a picture of a young Fred Rogers.
1: This was, must have been around 96 because the one is dated. But um, one day I went into his office and I just sat with him for a while. And I remember we were talking about Zen rock gardens. Ah. And, and I, I always wanted to make a Zen rock garden. And years later, I actually did a piece for the Three Rivers Arts Festival w- that I called Toy Zen Garden. And I took Fisher Price toys and I put a stick on the end of them with the little wheels. And I dipped them in paint, and I drew a rock garden. It was a very playful, silly kind of thing. But it was kind of inspired in, little, in some way by that conversation with Fred because I thought about, I'm going to make this rock garden, but I want to make it for children, you know. Or I want to make it, like, very playful, like a child would do it or something. But anyway, he wrote on this one for for David with kindest personal regards. Mm. And then then we talked for a while and then this one he wrote "Dear David, you are special. Mm. I love this one. This, I this was actually my album when I was a kid. This one here, it has a mirror on it.
0: Uh, wow.
1: See you're in there now. Yes,
0: I am. I guess I'm special.
1: <laughs> that's pretty great. Um, and then he wrote for David, I'm glad I'm the way I am whole. Ah, uh, that one right there. Yeah,
0: that's great. Uh, you can see Fred with his handwriting.
1: His handwriting is beautiful. And then this one, he wrote, "Today is new, David, and so is every second of your life."
0: Ah, uh, ah. Uh, today is new, David, and every second of your life. Ah, uh, my. And goodness. it
1: says Shalom. Uh, it's in Hebrew.
0: Yeah. Oh, in Hebrew.
1: Yeah he he would write that on his. Uh, Sometimes when he signed autographs, he'd write he'd write that. He'd write Peace or Shalom.
0: Uh, okay. Um
1: But yeah, I, I mean I had a few really nice I used to go into his office when I I was in the building a lot dropping off my artwork, um at the at Pittsburgh magazine. And when I would go in there sometimes I Fred had a drawing of Snoopy by Charles Schultz. Hmm. And I think I think he had it had him on as a guest on the show and he made the drawing, you know, on the show. And it was a really simple, sketchy drawing, and it was so great. And I used to love to look at it. And so sometimes I'd walk past the office where Family Communications was, and I'd just kind of poke my head in and and I'd ask someone, Can I just go look at that Snoopy drawing? <laughs> and they'd be like, Okay. And so I'd walk in there and I'd look at it. And um, but if Fred was in there sometimes, I just Say hello, and so I had a few times where I sat on the couch with Fred, and we just we just talked for a little bit. you know he was always very open to talking and very receiving and I became good friends also with David Newell, who um, played uh, Speedy mcfeely yes, um and David's a very kind man, and his daughter was in art school at the time, and it's funny, you know, going circling back to the beginning of our conversation um. Because David would say, oh, I don't know what she's going to do to make a living, you know.
0: <laughs> she's, she's
1: <laughs> and I used to think, well, that's funny. I mean, you're, you, you're Mr. McFeely, you know, like what, who would have thought that you would make a living being, you know, like a speedy delivery man on a, a kid show. Um, and I used to always say, oh, she'll be fine. she'll, you know, she'll figure it out. There's lots of things that artists can do in the world. You know, there's, I think she was studying photography at the time. Um but anyway, she ended up she works in television now. I think she's a producer on a TV show or something like that. So she's doing very well. She lives in LA. Okay. Um, so at least the last I heard, I think.
0: Yeah, the interactions with uh Mr. McFeely, uh I would probably suspect that there's many people who really wanted to meet Fred.
1: I think ev- everyone wanted to meet Fred. And I mean, he he would talk to people. I mean, I, I've seen some interviews with Fred where he, you know, I think the, he would always stop and talk to you and have his photograph taken. Um, have you seen the the show that Rick Seebeck, the interview with Rick Seebeck?
0: No, I haven't.
1: It's on YouTube. Um, that's a really good one. Um, he interviewed him in the early 90s. And then I think he went back and and found some of the lost footage from that interview and had made a new show of it Uh. for his nebby series. But Ted, uh, Fred tells the story of when he was, uh, uh, working at NBC back in the day, um, he ran into a movie star who he doesn't mention, but then it says that, um, David Newell said that it was Audrey Hepburn Uh. and he wanted to photograph her. And he asked her and she said, Oh no, and he was very hurt. Like he was, it it, it made him feel bad. And he was kind of hurt, hurt by that. Um, and he, you know, probably made him feel foolish or whatever. He, I don't know. He, 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 then he talks about that. So he, he decided that if anyone ever wanted to take his picture, he would always say yes.
0: Uh, and, you know. He didn't want to disappoint anyone.
1: Yeah. He didn't want to disappoint anyone. Hmm. And it's a small thing. He's like, it's a small thing to do, you know.
0: Well, it's uh, showing kindness to everybody that he meets. Yeah. Mm. I mean,
1: Fred was really a remarkable human. And uh, I don't think it was lost on me how special he was when I was working on that show. I was really aware that he was a... For one thing, he's just a true artist. I mean, I mean, I was really impressed by Fred as an artist, you know, because he wrote the songs and he did the... He did the puppets and he wrote the music. He was a great songwriter. His song, his songwriting is incredible. Really beautiful songs. He's sort of like a Tin Pan Alley type songwriter. You know, he writes songs that just like drill wormholes in your head. You know,
0: <laughs> <laughs> he wrote songs that drilled wormholes in your head. Yeah. Isn't There's this that, catchy. you know, isn't that cool. I remember a particular, uh, the movie that Tom Hanks was in, uh, when there was one particular scene when the writer from Esquire magazine first came to the show and he was trying to get something with Mr. Rogers and everybody on the set, there was a, a couple of parents that brought their child in to meet Mr. Rogers and the child had been able to say how much they appreciated Rogers in their life. And Rogers held everything up for like half an hour speaking to this family. And uh, some of the the staff was a little bit exasperated, but not much. And the writer was getting uh, upset and uh, impatient and saying, how often does this happen? And the person looks at that writer and says, every day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
1: I saw some of that, too, when they would bring people in to meet Fred and stuff like that. And he would just, yeah, he wanted to spend time with them and people would be kind of looking at their clocks, you know. And, yeah, he was very generous. But I I, I think he's a true artist. the thing I loved about Fred was, and I, I think what really connected to me, me to that, sh- to him was that he was someone who kept his childhood alive his whole life. You know,
0: that's an interest. that's a great statement, David. He was a person who kept his childhood alive his whole life.
1: Yeah. He was, he wasn't removed. Like he, it was obvious that he could just go there, you know? And he, and when he was playing with his puppets and, and acting out the parts, he was also playing, you know, he was really playing. and he was I could just see he wasn't far removed from his childhood. And that's something that I relate to on a level as an artist. I think that getting back to that talking about, you know, all, all children are creative, all, everyone, all humans are creative, We're all creative. And And that's something that's connecting to that spirit of, of being a child, and that joy of creation that you experience in childhood, that that's a key to to being creative. I think for me, and I think for lots of people, you know.
0: I absolutely agree. Now, Fred wasn't freeform. He, from what I understand, he was meticulous about the way that the show operated.
1: It was very scripted, and there wasn't like a lot of yeah. You what know, things weren't ad libbed too much. I don't. I mean, I don't think things were really ad libbed or. Yeah, he 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 really used every part of himself. Um that's the thing that's really impressive, you know. He used every part of himself. He was he was playful and fun and spirited, but he was also very serious, you know. And uh down to business and uh was obviously a, a good businessman and he wrote those he wrote all the scripts. He was very disciplined. He swam every day. Um he kept his weight at 143 because I love you. There's one is I, love is four, and you is three. He tried to keep his weight at 143 for that reason. And, um, you know, he was very disciplined for sure.
0: So, how could a guy like him walk on the streets? He was instantly recognizable almost anywhere.
1: He had a little office space in Oakland, and I think he lived nearby. And I, I don't think he. Walked. Up, I mean, I know he walked the streets of Oakland all the time.
0: Have you met? Or met? Have you ever met his wife, David?
1: Uh, I met his wife on the show a couple of times, like at the studio. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I saw them at a restaurant. Uh, they were eating Indian food in Oakland one time when I was in a restaurant, and they were there. And I just went up and said hello to Fred. And yeah.
0: So if you have if you had a memory, a lasting memory that you would share with anybody about uh, Fred Rogers, what would that be?
1: A lasting memory?
0: Yes, uh, a memory—the mo- one of the most poignant memories that you have of him.
1: Well, I think it would probably be that—that that time where I got to to sit behind the tree and watch him do the puppets. Mm. Um, because that, to me, that was just—I remember being a child watching the show. I loved X the Isle. You know, that's the thing I love. Like Fred, all those puppets are Fred and they're they're all very different personalities, but they're all part of his personality, ah. you know? And um, I remember I, I had very, you know, specific memories of watching the show and watching Henrietta Pussycat and X the Owl. And here it was, you know, I don't know, 40, 35 years later or something like that. And I'm sitting there behind the tree on the other side. I've broken through the, you know, the TV set and I'm on the other side. <laughs> Watching it happen, and I, I think it was just kind of amazing. Uh, that That's probably my my favorite memory, you know. I'll never forget it.
0: How many people are quite envious when you start to tell them, hey, I worked with Fred Rogers?
1: Uh, I don't know if people are envious. People just think it's great, though.
0: It's just wonderful. I dealt yeah. with a person once uh, years ago, David, that their grandmother lived across the street from Mr. Rogers' mother in Lightrobe. And uh, most every Sunday, Fred would come to visit his mother, and sometimes he would take this uh, little boy—not a little boy anymore—take him by the hand and walk him around the block. He said that was the greatest experience of his life.
1: I felt very blessed, you know. And i I think what's really kind of profound to me, though, is—is that there's a little circle of friends. There's like a lot of my friends. When I think about my little community and my, you know, my circle of friends, um. There there are people that I met at Mr. Rogers that are like, that's, that's the, those are the people, you know, you talk about your 3am friends. Yes. You know, one of them is my friend Alexis and Joe, who I met on that show, you know, their husband and wife. And I met them working on the show and we've been through everything together. You know, we've, we've, we've been very close and, you know, they're like family to me, you know, and, um, that's probably the most important thing that came out of that show you know, working, working on that show is that those relationships that I have with those people.
0: Oh, yes. Yes. How, how fortunate have you been in your career to encounter so many wonderful people in your life? And how many people have you influenced, David? Um, I mean, I've influenced some people. I do feel, I feel,
1: you know, I feel good to me when I, when people tell me that, that they're inspired by the work I do or, you know, I mean, I post things on Facebook and I post things on Instagram and sometimes, you know, someone just writes something and it, and it just makes me feel good that they, that it brought joy to their lives, you know, and uh, my father was a school teacher for, well, he taught for 50 years, but he taught at North Hills High School for 35 Mm -hmm. years. And when he died, people came to his funeral from class of 1970. And he died in 2009. Uh, And he had students come from the class of 1970 and tell me that he was the most important teacher of their lives, that he was their favorite teacher. Not just one or two people. I mean, probably a dozen people said that to me who had him. A lot of his students came. And that was really, that was really powerful. And in some ways it made me feel like you know, I love to teach, but I'm not, I don't know if I'm a good teacher. You know, I think, I think teaching requires your full attention and your full focus. And um, sometimes I think I feel like, you know, I, I, I've tried to teach and I think I have been a good teacher at times, Um, but I never wanted to be a full-time teacher, you know.
0: Well, I guess that that would be uh, in the realm of your students, they would be the ones who could determine that
1: yeah that's true i mean i had <laughs> i won't i maybe i shouldn't tell this story but i taught at a college and i had teachers tell me or students tell me that like my lectures were a waste of their time and <laughs> uh, <laughs> i think teaching is one of the you know because I, I i remember having some teachers that changed my life and um you know i think that teaching is the most one of the most important jobs there is um And I think maybe someday I'll, I'll get back to teaching. I don't know. It's hard to make a living as a teacher. It's sad these days because I don't have a master's degree. And if you're teaching adjunct, you don't, you don't make anything. It's really hard to do it because you, the pay is so bad. Um, Indeed. And it's a little depressing, you know, it's a little discouraging when you're just, you're making, you're putting a lot of effort into it and you're not making much and you feel like the students don't really appreciate it. You know? Um,
0: well, in the 12-step world, David, we call that planting seeds. You never know when they're going to sprout.
1: Yeah, I understand that. Yeah. And in, I mean, I, I've taught enough to know that if you have 30 students and you reach one of them, then you're really doing something, you know.
0: Well, that's nice when somebody gives you that and says, oh, you reach one student. Well, you're not with them eight hours a day and you don't experience the frustration that I feel at times. Uh, so, you know, we've always, one of the my favorite uh 12-step expressions is you can't think your way into acting right. You have to act your way into thinking right. And Mm -hmm. it's action and effort in life that uh, makes something happen. And David, I when I talk about action and effort, I usually give this uh, little talk about it. I say, there was a person that prayed to win the lottery every day for years, Mm, sweat blood, nothing ever happened. And uh, one day they yelled up out at the sky, they say, God, why won't you let me win the lottery? And God called back down and said, could you meet me halfway and at least buy a ticket? So, <laughs> yeah, for sure. So that's what I often suggest to people. Yeah. You got to buy the ticket. You can't wishing and hoping and waiting for something to happen just doesn't work.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You have to show up and you have to try things, you know. I mean, I think, you know, getting back to like, how do you get there from here? Yes. Or- here, here from there, you know. Big part of it is just trying, and you know, you're gonna fail, you're gonna be rejected. You know, I, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've gotten rejection letters for exhibitions or for grants or for you know projects or fun. And I'm, I'm waiting to hear about one right now, and we'll see what happens. And you know, but uh, that happens a lot. You just have to just keep trying, and just you know, part of it is just being persistent. You know.
0: Well, it's not how many times you fail, it's how many times you get back up. Right, for sure. That's the way that we view things. Yeah. So quite often I'll talk about people, well, which end of the horse are you looking at? The horse has two ends. and But the horse doesn't move, only you can. It's a, it's a, it's a change of perception. So yeah. uh, I would probably suspect that there's times in your life that you felt, oh man, I'm not getting anywhere. This isn't working.
1: Yeah, lots of times. I mean... You know, it's, it's one thing to, you know, like, I I think when I first started doing national illustration, it happened so quickly that I thought like, oh, well, I've arrived and now I, now I can just like coast, you know, like took me a while to get this boat sailing, but now I can just sort of coast. And I did for a while, but it wasn't like it wasn't hard work. But then when it started to, you know, the wind blows and the, the sail falls down and you know like you got to figure out how to get your boat back up out of the water and you know there's been many times like I've kind of reinvented myself as an illustrator you know at least 3 times in terms of like doing a body of work and having a certain style and you know the work you build a body of work and then you want to you want to grow because an artist dies if you don't grow you know you 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 have to grow and you you have to change. And, and when you're selling something and it's a product, which illustration is a product, you know, you're selling it to someone, they're buying it. So you're essentially making what they want you to make. Sure. And, and, you know, and the joy is you get to make put part of yourself in there. And uh, depending on the client, sometimes you get to put a lot of yourself and sometimes you don't get to put much of yourself, but, but if you want to grow, you have to change, and and change is always hard, you know. Change is always painful, pa- painful sometimes, you know.
0: Well, I've often talked about that what's good today, what sells today may not be there tomorrow, uh, and everything changes. And I often suggest to people that they have to be flexible and malleable and adaptable, uh, to situations, uh, you know, we don't want to be willful. We want to be willing. And sometimes I'll use this illustration. I'll say, have you ever seen a thoroughbred horse race? Well, yes, they're big, magnificent animals and they can do one thing and they can do it well. However, what do they have over their eyes? Uh, blinders. So mm-hmm. when we're just focused and we do one thing and we have an expert's mind and I often say, have you ever been around a three or a four year old child? Uh, and they view the world with wonder and with everything new. And we're I don't know when we lose that, uh, but we have to be able to adapt to the times. If uh, if Sears and Roebuck would have adapted to the changing technology, they'd still be in business. And at one time, they were the largest retailer in the world. However, now they're bankrupt. Uh, and I say, well, I use Amazon as an example. I'll say, well, they adapted to the times. However, if they don't continue to change and adapt, they'll be bankrupt also yeah
1: Sears started as a catalog, yes, business, which is interesting too.
0: yes, they it's, did
1: They didn't have stores. They started you know almost like online shopping and you know it was, you looked at a book and then you you bought the thing from a book, like a picture on a in a book, you know,
0: I couldn't wait when I was young. I couldn't wait until the Sears toy catalog came out of Christmas.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't really remember the Sears catalog, but I definitely remember. The Sunday paper would come, and it would have like the toy ads, you know.
0: Oh that. yeah, I just loved to peruse those. Most of the things I wasn't going to get, but we could yeah. always we could always dream. Uh, where do you go from here, David? What goes on in your life?
1: You know, I'm I'm uh, I'm painting again, um, and I had quit painting for quite a while, and um, I had really spent. I had decided maybe like nine, eight or nine years ago that I was just going to focus on my illustration work. And I was going to not make work for myself, and I was going to, you know. And then, then the Mattress Factory invited me to be in a show there in 2017, I think. And I did this video installation, and it's on my website if you go to davidpole.com. There's a link for the Mattress Factory show, um, and that was a really interesting piece of art that I made. It was a video installation with music and sound, and um, and that was a really that was a pretty interesting thing, but that was really the only thing I did that wasn't commercial work for about eight or nine years. And, um, and then I think that, um, you know, I started thinking, well, I've reached a dead end here. You know, I need to like start doing personal work again, start exploring my soul work again, you know, through the work. Um, so last year I started painting and, um, and right now, um, my girlfriend Kara and I are working on my house, and uh, um, I'm going to be uh, moving my studio up to the third floor. Um, and I've, I'm looking forward to like just doing more of work for myself and trying to find more of a balance between professional work and the personal work, you know. And um, I've been posting some of my paintings online, and uh, been getting a really nice response from people. Um, it's hard to sell paintings, um, but uh, but that's what I'm going to focus on for the next year at least. I mean, this winter, um, one thing about COVID that's really been amazing is that I think it's forced everybody to slow down. And, um, you know, I lost a few jobs this year that I knew I was supposed to get. They were related to, you know, I do work sometimes for theatrical and you know, theater companies and uh, that kind of thing, music shows and things, and so those things aren't happening. So, um, so I it gave me some time to just do some work, and I it reconnected me to that and how much joy it brings me, you know. And uh, so that's what I'm going to focus on this winter. I'm going to spend a month after the holidays. I'm going to try to spend a month every day in my studio just working on my paintings.
0: Ah. A month every Kind of day. wrapping up
1: uh, <laughs> a body of work that I started where I have about probably 30 paintings up there right now.
0: Okay. Are you excited about your life again, David?
1: Yeah, I'm always excited about my
0: life. Wonderful. That's great. It's great to have that spark and that drive. I
1: mean, for the most part, I am. Yeah. it doesn't mean I don't get depressed or <laughs> down or, you know. But, yeah, I've always I'm always excited about my life. And I'm excited about life in general, you know.
0: Well, in a 12 step world, we have a saying, all days are good. Some are better than others.
1: It's true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's we only get one life. You know, this is it, you know, and uh, hasn't always been good the way I live my life in terms of living for the moment, living for the day. You know, Um, I know I could I could do better at uh, planning for the future and things like that. And I think as I'm getting older, I've reached a balance with that now in my life. And it feels good, you know.
0: Well, I always suggest to people to spend their time as if it were currency, to be mindful of the how they choose to spend their most valuable asset, and that's their time.
1: Time is the most valuable thing that we have, you know? I, I, I've always felt that.
0: Absolutely, times the most valuable possession we have. And I often suggest to people you wouldn't walk down the the streets of Pittsburgh throwing $20 bills on the ground or burning 50s. However, people do that with the most valuable asset that they have. Right. And the the absolute fact that you have a choice on how to spend it uh, is, I think, one of the most valuable. So I have all these tattoos all over me, and one of them says, I choose. Okay. And I consider I choose to be the two most powerful words in a person's vocabulary, David. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, you ninety know, percent of cognitive behavioral therapy is changing the language in the way you speak to yourself. And that's why I have this one tattoo on here. I don't know if you can see it, but it says "abracadabra." Uh, <laughs> uh, and when when you think of the term "abracadabra," David, what comes to your mind? Um,
1: like uh. Well, actually, Rocky and Bullwinkle. <laughs> <laughs> I love hey, Ozzie. Rocky, watch me pull a rabbit out
0: of my hat. <laughs> yes, it's like magic making something appear, right? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, it's a real word. It comes from the Bible's Jesus time. It's Aramaic. And roughly what it translates into, I speak what I create. I create what I speak. So the language and the way that you speak to yourself, your perception, uh, that's when I when I say pe- tell people, we're going to make magic in your head. That's what I mean, abracadabra.
1: Oh, wow, I had no idea. that's that's great. Wow. I didn't realize where that where that word came from. I just thought it was a magician's, you know, nonsense word or something. well,
0: it's 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 a real word. it's Aramaic, so uh, that's a little tidbit that you can titillate your friends with. <laughs> <laughs> well, David, you've been delightful. And I hope that uh, we can catch up again in the future. Uh, and at the end of every podcast, David, we offer a free prescription. Fruits, nuts, and vegetables, unplug your television and take up fishing. And for a truly mindful experience, we suggest that you fish without bait. Do a kindness for yourself and do a kindness for another. Forgive yourself and forgive another. Till all are free, none are free. Namaste.
1: Please check out our website at fishingwithoutbait.com where you can listen to the show, comment on our discussions, and find out where you can subscribe to our podcast. If you're interested in...